The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, Dan Shaw, entrepreneur, founder of the Cotswolds Distillery, which is set to become the biggest producer of whiskey in all of England. We'll hear about his expansion plans and also what defines his delicious spirits. Plus, of course, your recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Paint a picture of the Cotswolds and chances are it's a bucolic one of honey-coloured stone, rolling hills, sheep and quaint country pubs serving pies and frothy ale. Whiskey uh, might not uh, slot into that stereotypical image, but the Cotswolds distillery uh, is going to change that. Uh, Based in Britain's uh, biggest area of outstanding natural beauty, covering more than 800 square miles across five counties, uh, the distillery is becoming uh, rather famous uh, for the quality of its uh, products. Uh, Established less than a decade ago, Uh, It's already famous for its whiskey. Uh, There was an IWSC gold medal winning uh, Cotswold single malt whiskey in 2019 and also for its rather delicious gin as well. I'm a fan. Dan Shaw is the founder of the Cotswold Distillery and he joins us now. Uh, Dan, it's great pleasure to welcome you to the drinking hour. Thank you so much, David. It's great to be here. So uh, tell us uh, less than a decade ago why you founded the Cotswolds Distillery. Well, I certainly wasn't from or of this industry. Uh, I'd spent 30 years in, um, in in finance and investment and a slightly loveless sort of career, but that did uh, have me doing some interesting things in great places, emerging from New York, and it had me over in Paris and then in London. Uh, but I'd never really felt that it was it was it was something I was I was passionate about, and I felt that I still had that in me um, at some point in my life. And uh, when the company I'd worked for for nearly 30 years went out of business, I thought, well, this is this is uh, this is destiny calling. I have to do something. And I started thinking outside the box about what I could do that I could really be passionate about and and love. Um, and I decided to combine two things that I really loved, which was the Cotswolds and whiskey. Well, I love the Cotswolds too, although I'm not a native. Um, I'm actually a Geordie. And I'm guessing from your accent, that's not a Cotswolds accent. That is not. I grew up uh, as far from the Cotswolds, both uh, in distance and in, uh, in, in, in vibe as you, you could. I grew up in, uh, uh, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Real New Yorkers, as we used to call ourselves, uh, the guys who live in flats and big buildings, kind of, uh, have this relationship with uh, nature and with the country. It's just something they're so deprived of that they just need it every so often and they get out of town and they go up to Vermont or the beaches of Long Island or out to farms in upstate New York. And um, it was that appreciation of it that drove me as a Londoner to buy a, a farmhouse in, in the Cotswolds as a place just to get away for the weekends. And uh, it was never meant to be more than that. But uh, the longer I spent here, the more I just felt absolutely amazed uh, by the effect that it had on me. And, and it has on, I think, it has that effect on most people who come and visit it. it. It's when you come into the Cotswolds, especially we're only 70 or 80 miles away from London, um, it's, it's like you've gone into a time machine and you've gone back 200 years. 
um, to what this what this country looked like. And and it's that magic and that beauty that I wanted to express through the spirits that we make at the distillery. Well, you're preaching to the converted here. I, I couldn't agree more. You paint uh, that uh, perfect picture, actually. Uh, so tell us why you think the Cotswolds should be a natural place for whiskey. Well, the first the first thing that came to me was uh, the fact that there's barley growing all up and down the Cotswolds. Cotswolds is a very agricultural area, and one of the main focus points of agriculture here is arables, and one of the main arables that grow is uh, is barley, particularly malting barley. And it was in July 2012 uh, when I was up here for the weekend, still as a Londoner, um, and I looked out the window. Um, we're surrounded by a farm which doesn't belong to us, but we sort of, we watch the seasons go by based on whatever's being planted that year, and that year it happened to be malting barley. And barley has this great sort of look when the when the breeze kind of ripples through it and you see it, it's almost like a wave. Um, and uh, looking out on the field of barley, I thought to myself, you know, why hasn't anyone ever made any whiskey here and the idea came to me from a scottish distillery that i was uh, that i followed very closely and was was uh, very enthusiastic about called brook laddie on the isla uh, in the hebrides um, that similarly believed in the idea of provenance and terroir that things should reflect you know be made with products from from where, where they are and uh, brook laddie had gone to great pains to bring barley farming which had since disappeared from isla back to Isla and make a whiskey with Isla Barley. And I thought, you know, that's just a brilliant idea and we can do that here. And we have the benefit of, you know, 30 plus million people who come to the Cotswolds every year. So are you kind of um, buying locally when it comes to your ingredients then? We, we are, and we've always done that. It's been a central part of our, our, our grain-to-glass whiskey making is, is that the grain comes from the Cotswolds, uh, will always come from the Cotswolds. Um, for the last few years, we've been working with a farm about 15 minutes away from us near the town of Woodstock, where Blenheim Palace is. And uh, it's a fifth-generation um, tenant farming family uh, on the Blenheim, the tenant farms on the Blenheim estate. So that barley is uh, as close as you can possibly get, and then it goes to a maltings uh, which is just on the edge of the Cotswolds in Warminster, just near Bath, um, to be malted by hand in a technique which uh, doesn't exist a whole lot anymore, but um, it, it is one of Warminster maltings is the oldest working maltings in the UK. And so we're very proud of having 100% floor malted barley uh, going into, from the Cotswolds, going into our Cotswold single malt. Making whiskey is famously uh, a long-term investment. Um, you have to have patience. Uh, you've got to have barrels. Um, and also barrels of cash uh, normally because um, you've got to wait a while before you can flog anything, haven't you? You do. And um, and, and I certainly underestimated um, what would be necessary um, for this uh, for this to sort of you know, be able to work and grow and, and the, the sort of working capital we would require. I think I underestimated by a factor of about 10. Um, I had Ooh. just enough money <laughs> where I could sort of plow my life savings, which I did into this business. Um, um, you know, mortgage the house and everything, um, but nowhere near enough to see it through. So there were many rounds of fundraising. Some of them were crowdfunding rounds where we were able to attract investors, sort of passionate investors uh, who might be interested in as little as one share, um, but who would be great brand ambassadors for us. So we've we've got you know well over a thousand investors in the company, and they're patient, they're benevolent, they're passionate, they're quite pleased, I think, with the results that we've been able to generate. But you're right, it is a very long-term game. And just for those who don't know uh, much about how whiskey is, is made. Just explain a little bit more about why you need that patience and that cash. 
Sure. Well, so whiskey, um, by law in the EU and still in the UK, um, has to be aged for a minimum of three years in in wooden casks, typically oak. Um, and uh, so, you know, having to make a product that you can't sell for a minimum of three years, if not longer, is you know, certainly not something I'd wish on my, my worst enemy, sort of financially. It's really difficult, really tough. Um, you know, the rise of gin in this country, one of the reasons we've seen that is because there isn't that sort of waiting period and you can sort of make gin one day and sell it the next, whereas you can't do that with whiskey. And you, you have to buy all those casks as well and, and wait all that time. I'm going to come to your gin in a minute because um, I think I'm right in saying it, it kind of helped you out a bit in terms of that that cash flow. But we'll come to the gin, as I say, shortly, because I still want to carry on with whiskey. Um, I was amazed. Uh, your um, very talented um, head of mixology uh, gave me a bit of a, a tasting at uh, Brown's in uh, Mayfair uh, just pre-Christmas, which was lovely. Um, and I was quite surprised to see quite so many whiskies on the back shelf behind the bar. Um, how many are you producing? Well, we're we're very proud of the fact that as of just this past autumn, when we released uh, the two remaining sort of uh, core expressions of our whiskey that would be in our permanent sort of range, uh, we now have a core range of a half dozen whiskies um, that will always be there. Um, uh, you know, the supply isn't enormous, but uh, if one waits a month or two, it'll 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 come back. But um, they represent sort of the the the, the the, the foundation of our of, of our whiskey uh, range, and then in addition to those six, um, there are now essentially three limited edition whiskies: a, a fall release or autumn release, I should say, a spring release, and a single cask uh, release, which sort of comes comes and goes. Uh, so for a total of nine whiskies, and add to that our new make whiskey, which we call White Pheasant, which we actually sell as a product because we love it. Uh, that much and two Amaro uh, whiskey liqueurs uh, so that's a total of 12 whiskey products and that's enough for me for 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 a very long time I bet it is so how are these uh, whiskies different is this just down to, to maturation vessels Yes, in, in, in short, but also well, it's I would say it's maturation vessels, i.e. the type of cask in which they're matured, uh, but also um, blending. You know, the beautiful thing about, um, uh, I mean, many people think that if you say the word blend, you're talking about a blended scotch like a, a Johnny Walker, etc. That's not the case. Um, all of our whiskey is single malt, meaning it comes from one single distillery and it's all made from malted barley. But typically almost all single malts are blends of different casks and the ways in which you can put different casks together are infinite. Um, you can create any number of really wonderful expressions uh, by drawing on the characteristics of a sherry cask versus a peated cask or a bourbon cask or a wine cask. Um, so our range basically has uh, two flagships, uh, our signature and our reserve edition, which are different combinations of two casks, which are, are probably are the mainstay of our wood program, which is a Firstville bourbon cask, wonderful casks that come from Kentucky, and an ex-red wine cask, which has been recharred and, and toasted and, and shaved, and uh, they're they're tremendous. Um, and then we have four uh, ex cask expressions, which are basically each one of them are true to the kind of cask they've come from. So a bourbon cask, a wine cask, a sherry cask that came out last year, uh, um, a peated cask, um, and 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 that sort of describes the the different effects, and these are all full-term maturation, by the way, we don't 
some people uh, finish whiskey, meaning that they'll age it in a cask, which won't give it too much flavor, perhaps an old cask. And then at the very end, putting it put into a sherry cask or a, a wine cask to give it some flavor. We believe in putting our distillate directly from the still into these wonderful casks. Um, and each cask, depending on what it's had in it or the type of wood it's made from or the size, will determine the flavor. And, and that's the interesting thing about whiskey is you can, there's so many different variations. And I suppose by doing that, you're also making uh, life more difficult for yourself too. I mean, you, you, you're not taking any shortcuts uh, with uh, these uh, products, are you? No. Well, the, the, the costs are, are huge, but we've always believed that cost shouldn't be an issue. I mean, I have always basically said to everyone, I'm not going to do this a second time. That's it. This is my one shot at making whiskey, and I want to make a whiskey that I would want to drink. I want to make it as good as I possibly can. And I think when you're at our size, we're already so sort of economically you know, financially disadvantaged, really, because of the, our small scale. The only thing you can play on is quality. So you should just make something as 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 as, as wonderful as you can, um, and and hope that uh, uh, consumers will appreciate um, what you've put into it. Which at this point in time they are. I think we're at a phase where people are really caring about the the story behind spirits, the authenticity, where they're from, how they're made, and and we have all of that in, in spades. I was going to say, uh, provenance has become such a big thing, I think even more so during the pandemic, actually. Um, and that really plays to your strengths uh, with the Cotswolds Distillery, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, some, one, one, one of our non-execs, uh, Ken, Ken Greer, who uh, was responsible for the meteoric rise of, 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 of the Macallan over 20 years, um, came in, tasted all of our spirits from our whiskeys to our gins to our rums and said the thread that runs through all this is their deliciousness and i love that word because that's that's the only thing i knew how to do i I didn't even know how to do it but that's the only priority i had when i started out was to make everything be delicious and reflect the deliciousness of the the landscape we're sitting in the middle of as i'm talking to you right now i'm looking out at, at at this beautiful green field that's just almost glowing in the, the late afternoon sun and and you know it, the idea for me is to be able to put that beauty into a spirit and then that's truly how i think much of uh, of the scotch whiskey culture was made it relied very much on the magic and the specialness of the of the area and and i realized that there's nothing that uh, scotland really has on us in terms of beauty ours is a very different kind of beauty it's not quite as raw it's not, you know, the high peaks. It's not the surf crashing on the beach or the rocks. Uh, it's more like an impressionist painting that speaks to your your heart. And do you ever get people, uh, perhaps in Scotland, in Ireland, places more synonymous historically with whiskey, getting a bit sniffy about the fact that you're uh, doing it uh, you know, down south? I think a bit at first, but I think the world has, has moved on quite a bit. I mean, firstly, those, those in Scotland who are in the business, uh, those who, who produce whiskey, I think generally, you know, we're, we're, we're quite quite impressed by what we're doing. Firstly, um, I, I had no idea of how to make whiskey. I mean, I, I had complete humility in that sense. Um, I knew what I wanted, but I didn't know how to get there. And so I managed to find two wonderful uh, Scots who between them had over 100 years experience whiskey making. And it was really thanks to them that our whiskey is is what it is. Um, and we've had lots of Scots come down and see the way we distill and 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 feel quite nostalgic because the way we distill is sort of the way, way whiskey was made, you know, sort of. 50 to 100 years ago before things got very 
tied up in sort of PLCs and global luxury brands and and maximizing production at all costs sort of. Um, we have a bunch of guys who had very little experience but a lot of passion and they're turning the valves themselves. There's no automation. So it, it's, uh, I, I think they can understand that. You clearly have um, a bit of a, a thing about, you know, people, uh, maybe from your previous uh, career, but you're, you mentioned there the expertise you brought in uh, to uh, bring the experience uh, to craft these whiskies. Uh, I mentioned Ollie earlier, the head of mixology, who's uh, pretty brilliant. Um, and then, of course, there's um, Alice Pearson, who works for you, got an emerging talent IWSC award, um, hotly contested award always. Um, I think she's just uh, 20. I think she does your research and development. That's right, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, very, very proud of what Alice has achieved. She uh, came, she's she's Cotswolds born and bred. Um, she came to us when she was 19, um, first working in our, our, our shop, uh, doing some tours and visits and things, and, and then interned in our R&D lab only to eventually sort of take over that whole activity. And she designed an, an old Tom Gin, which won some pretty, pretty great awards. Um, and, and, and yeah, the, all that at the age of 19. So she's now become our head of R&D and sensory analysis. And um, the focus really going forward will be on getting to better know our own whiskey because we've made over 4,000 casks. We've probably only tasted about 10%. So there's a big job ahead. Um, sounds like a good job, um, most would say. Um, but she has an amazing. Uh, Alice has an amazing palate, um, and um, and 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 you know, just that that same sort of enthusiasm and passion is shared by so many of our staff, our distillers, the folks in our shops. Uh, the thing I'm most proud of is having been able to put together such an amazing team here in the middle of uh, the very rural North Cotswolds. To what extent is that team? important to what extent is uh whiskey or origin about people where we're concerned it's completely about people and i'm always very proud to say that 90 percent of our staff are owners uh or potential owners of, of the company and i feel really strongly that they everyone ought to have sort of skin in the game um because it is really all down to them um i you know my my, my abilities are probably limited to the sort of founder you know visionary kind of you know man with a dream kind of thing but i i couldn't couldn't have possibly done any of this really without the amazing team that we have so yeah i think that every time you and particularly i think sorry people that have come to the distillery and we encourage people to come where we've got three tours a day seven days a week they're all full um we love to have people come and and see us see what we're about it's a beautiful distillery if i say so myself one of the most beautiful i've ever seen but when they see the people and they hear the passion in their voice, they will, I think, I hope, always think of our spirits in a different way, and they'll, 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 that will reflect. To what extent is tourism really important to a modern distillery? I think that if you're in an area that uh, is tourist-friendly, um, it's, it's definitely in your interest to, uh, to pursue that, uh, that, that strategy of, of, of having a, a, a tourist-facing, visitor-facing sort of a brand home, um, as the expression I've learned is. With me, it was incredibly important because it's the way that I first fell in love with whiskey. Uh, I, I, I got into whiskey when I was living in Paris. The French are big fans of whiskey. Um, and I started going once a year up to Scotland with a friend and just touring around distilleries. And, and I was sort of seduced by the beauty, by um, the way they explained 
you know, what they were doing, why they were doing it. Uh, and in the same way, we try and do that ourselves. It's a very small part of our revenue at this point. It's probably maybe 10% of our, of our revenue with another 10% coming from our e-commerce. But as I always say, if somebody sees your brand on a shop shelf, they might remember you for a few hours or even a few days. But if they've been to the distillery, uh, to see us and understand who we are, they'll remember our brand for life. Well, uh, that brand is about to get bigger. There might be more for them to see because you've just uh, announced fairly significant expansion plans, haven't you? We have. And and that's really, I mean, it, it's mostly just about um, compensating or make, making up for <laughs> yours truly's um, oversights uh, in the beginning and not really understanding the degree to which the business has to be at some point point about scale and how um, you know, if you think about what it takes to sort of make whiskey it's it's not all that different from cooking you know it doesn't take more more hands to stir a 10 liter pot of soup than it does a two liter pot of soup and um, and and you know most distillers will tell you that they wish they had bought bigger stills from the from the word go um, because once you know, if your product becomes popular and you start draining your stock, well, then your stock is gone and it takes years and years to make more of it. Um, and as our whiskey became more popular, um, we realized that, you know, we, we might have a problem in sort of five or six years from now. And the time to think about that problem is, is unfortunately now. Uh, you need the five years to, to sort of be able to make more. So we are um, uh, going to move to a, a larger on-site whiskey distillery where we can you know, make whiskey in the exact same way, but just in slightly bigger quantities. Still a, a drop in the bucket by comparison to most distilleries you'd, you'd find up in Scotland, uh, but enough to see us through you know, another 10 years past that crunch point. It's exciting then, because this is um, in response to uh, public demand. It is, and 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 that's where I think you know our ambition changed a bit when we found ourselves uh, enjoying some national listings um, in some of the big UK grocers, sort of the Waitrose and Sainsburys and Tesco's, and uh, and I never really knew whether or not our whiskey would have relevance. Um, to the you know people who buy their whiskey in 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 grocers, I mean, albeit premium whiskey, single malt whiskey, um, versus people who come to the Cotswolds on holiday and sort of want to bring something home or are particularly attached to the region or real whiskey geeks. Um, but it turns out that you know sitting on the fixtures, shoulder to shoulder with icons like Glenfiddich 12 or Glenlivet 10, um, that Cotswold single malt did pretty well for itself, and and that. You know that was a wonderful thing to see, and it just meant, uh, along with the fact that now we see, um, quite literally dozens of distilleries in England gearing up uh, to make whiskey. It gives us new hopes and, I guess, aspirations for this whole category of English whiskey. You're very well supported within the Cotswolds. It's certainly in a lot of the country pubs. Well, we we try. Uh, you know, there, there's an expression that you, you know you really need to own your backyard, and and we you know we've got a beautiful backyard which we love, and we try and support it as 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 much as we can. Um, and you know it was a shame to sort of see um, things kind of come to a halt uh, during the sort of lockdowns. Um, but then I think the Cotswolds has recovered quite well, just given the amount of staycation sort of traffic and people coming, you know, needing to wanting to get out of the city and wanting to get back into nature. So uh, we, we've had a, a few good summers and are hoping for another one ahead of us. Yeah, no, it's it's certainly uh, bounced back. There's no question about that. Um, just before we come on to gin, uh, just finally on, on whiskey, I'm curious, um, uh, not having uh, made whiskey myself and, and not being a, a whiskey expert, um, I'm more of a, a sort of grape 
spirit man. Um, what? How do you choose the cask influence that you're going to go for? Because we're going to mention a couple of, um, at the end, a couple of your um, IWSC medal winners, um, the uh, Sauterne-influenced uh, 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 whiskey and the Sherry uh, whiskey, uh, barrel whiskey. Um, how do you choose uh, what those influences in maturation terms are going to be? Well, that's, that's, that's the wonderful part. I mean, there's just virtually no end to what you can do sort of creatively speaking um, in terms of choosing your cask. There, there are a couple of knowns. Uh, the first one is a type of wood. Well, typically it's oak. Oak is an excellent, you know, it's a high quality wood. It, it doesn't leak as much as some other woods do. And, and most, most whiskey casks are made of, of oak, but there's two distinct types of oak. There's American oak and, and European oak. And American oak, uh, white oak has a tighter grain and it, and it lets less tannin come out into whatever's in it. And, and so just as with wine, you know, some folks like their very oaked wine and some others prefer less oaked wine, um, whiskey will sort of draw tannin out multiple of times as quickly as, uh, you know, as will wine because it's that much stronger. It's a solvent. So um, uh, American oak, which bourbon casks are typically made from, um, is, is great. And it provides some of those great sort of sweet honey, um, malty kind of notes, um, butterscotch notes uh, that whiskey is known for. But of course, uh, sherry's wonderful. Sherry cask whiskey, you get that vinous quality to it. Um, long story short, I there's a lar- large choice of casks, but we could have easily been, uh, you know, led down the wrong street sort of by um, Cooper's uh, offering up less than high quality casks. But with the help of one of our two Scottish mentors, Jim Swan, who was known as the Einstein of whiskey, sadly passed away a few years ago. Um, we had access to the best coopers in the world, whether that be sherry coopers in Spain, wine coopers in, in, in wine barrel coopers in France, uh, or folks in Louisville, Kentucky. And thanks to Jim, we were able to get the best of the best of the best. Yeah, well, it, it certainly uh, tastes great. I, I've had friends um, come up to the Cotswolds and stay and and be desperate to bring home a really good uh, Cotswolds uh, present uh, to take back to London or, or wherever they come from. And, and I am uh, always recommend uh, something from the Cotswolds distillery portfolio. And it, it's, it's normally the, the whiskey that's chosen because you can get it in the majestic uh, Stow on the World amongst other places. Um, uh, what about this gin then? I mentioned earlier on, um, I'm a fan of the Cotswolds uh, gin. And uh, I believe we were talking earlier about cash flow. I believe this came about um, f- for uh, as much as anything else, for the for the reason you mentioned, that you can produce it more quickly. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, you know, it, it is true that 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 is a, 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 a route that many whiskey distillers have taken, um, uh, which is to look for an, an unaged product to help them to sort of build the brand and bring in some cash on the road to whiskey. But in some respects, that sort of demeans that product, um, the product you start with. And in our case, um, you know, we are absolutely head over heels in love with that product. And I, so I, I describe it more as our love child, our sort of unexpected <laughs> arrival on the road to whiskey, but that we love it every bit as much as its, its, its younger or older brother. Actually, we started making gin the same time as we did with whiskey. And initially, the idea was just simply that we ought to have something on the shelf of what was to be our little shop and visitor center uh, over the, the very long three-year wait until we could have whiskey. Um, and we spent quite a bit of time because we didn't have sort of Scottish mentors on the gin side. We had three distillers uh, with about a month of time on their hands while our 
big distillery was being sort of our main distillery was being finished um, in a small lab with a very small one liter still each and um, so each of them uh, together went through well as a group they went through 150 different botanicals that they tried um, things that you could put into to gin to, to make a gin and and they made 60 pilot gins after that and then they narrowed it down to 12 semi-finalists three finalists and then we decided on the the one that became Cotswolds Dry Gin. And um, to my surprise, we ended up getting a listing at Fortnum's, I think three days after the first gin came off the still. And it just never looked back. It just kept on going and going and going. And part of that, I think, was due to the uniqueness of, of the liquid. And that in in the same way as we described the whiskeys, it, it really was delicious and did really reflect you know, the beauty of the Cotswolds. You have someone peeling grapefruits uh, for the gin, don't you? A lot of grapefruit. A lot of grapefruits and a lot of limes. Um, I think last at last count, it was something like five or 600 grapefruits and about eight or 900 limes uh, every week that we go through the equivalent. And and, and there's a reason that we do that. Um, it, it's not that we enjoy it. It's with a, and it's by hand with a paring knife. But the difference... My that, God, um, that, that's fresh, exhausting. That, that must be it, a hideous job. It, it, it is. But I tell you, it creates an amazing aroma in our bottling oh, hall yeah, the day that it's done. Um, it's just like a citrus aroma, but um, and then we have a lot of bald fruit, which we then offer out to visitors, to staff. We even use some of it to make a wonderful grapefruit Collins cocktail in our cafe. But the reason that we use that fresh peel is because it's so much more aromatic. It's got so much more in the way of oils in it. And with gin, as with any spirit, it's all about the oils. Because basically, when you're drinking a spirit, all you're drinking is water, alcohol, and oils. And water and alcohol have no flavor. All the flavors in the oils. So the more oils, the more flavor. And is that where the famous pearlescence comes from as well? That That is. Um, because we pack so much more in the way of botanical intensity into our gin um, by basically just shoving a lot more botanicals into our still than anybody in his right mind sort of would, you end up getting a gin that has quite a lot in the way of oils. And those oils um, stay dissolved, uh, stay in solution uh, above a certain uh, level of alcohol, typically 46%. But as soon as the alcohol level goes below 46%, some of those oils come out of solution um, in an effect that's known as a louche, um, and, it, and, and it goes cloudy. Think pastis, if you've ever had a pastis or an ouzo, um, you know, spirits which are very clear, and then you pour water in and they kind of go milky white. Our gin doesn't quite go that, that far, but it just gets this very pretty sort of pearlescence to it. Um, and, and that's not an effect, that's not marketing, that's basically um, just something that um, is because of how much we put in. And some people decide to go through a process of chill filtration where they'll cool down the liquid. So some of those oils will come out and then they'll sieve them out with a filter. And that's the furthest thing from my mind. I just think we work so hard to put flavor in. Uh, why would we ever want to take it out? So that's your opposition to chill filtration, is it basically? Completely. I really don't care how something looks. I care how it tastes. It's all about flavor for me. You had a Christmas gin, uh, which was uh, delicious. I think that came about from a limited edition that uh, that sold out really quickly. Um, are you experimenting as much with gin as you are with uh, with whiskey? 
Um, I put that in the past tense because we we have experimented even more with gin, I think, uh, probably out of impatience and just having time on our hands a little bit until the whiskey was ready um, than we, we have with whiskey. Um, we've, we've come out with a, a number of different uh, gins right on the heels of our of our flagship Cotswolds Dry Gin. Uh, we made a wonderful, very sort of small edition um, Geneva, sort of a Dutch type gin, old fashioned gin using our whiskey spirit, but distilled uh, with botanicals called 1616 and then we did a hedgerow gin which was sort of our take on a slow gin then the old tom gin which i mentioned and then in 2020 we really wanted to address areas of innovation that we saw in gin so one of them was flavored gins and people were coming out with all sorts of strange flavored and colored gins and i wasn't really a nut about what i call kool-aid flavored gins i wanted nice. to do something a bit more sophisticated and the idea that i came out with was something that sort of harkened to some of the european aperitivos whether that be aperol or Suze or chartreuse um you know things that that have distinct herbal aromatic floral kind of flavors so we released this trio of gins that were based on on that concept of a sort of a spritz uh something that you could pour tonic over and just have a nice long drink uh, we came out with a, a, a our answer to the new fad in the sort of uh, the trend in low and no alcohol gins um, which was our gin essence and a trio of gin rtds that were very high-end kind of high-end on the on the alcohol and big on the flavor uh, rtds so i think that probably takes us to where we are today which is that we've we've got probably enough whiskeys and enough gins to last for a while. Yeah, um, that's a very clever product, those gin drops, by the way. I took those with me on to uh, this morning on ITV, uh, this time last year, and uh, Philip and Holly were very taken with those uh, uh, gin drops. And I love those Hedgerow limited editions as well. I, I don't really like my gin buggered about with very much, but um, uh, the, uh, the, the those uh, Hedgerow influences work uh, really well and i guess that's also very true to where you are in the world as well isn't it it is absolutely we have we have we don't have to look far for slows they're literally growing two feet behind the back door of the distillery um and uh we for years actually had uh, folks who were local to us in oxfordshire uh pick uh for us um and there were slows there were damsons uh there were bullets which are big slows bramble all of which were boshed into our Cotswolds dry gin and let let macerate for a year before making our our hedgerow gin. So uh, you've experimented uh, in the past, you said with with gin, uh, and you've gone through those. Um, we've talked about the whiskies. Um, have you got any other um, styles of drink in the offing? Because you're you're clearly um, you know you don't uh, rest on your laurels there. Well, there is there is one more that we're really hoping to to go bigger on, um, and that's rum. Uh, we uh, did a little experiment about uh, three years ago now, I guess, um, and we ran a rum campaign for a couple of months. And um, uh, I, I am a big lover of rum, and in particular, and there's different styles of rum. One of them that I love is Jamaican rum, which is sometimes referred to as high ester rum because of the the big flavors uh, that you, you get out of it. And um, someone said to me, well, what's what's so British about rum? How can you make an English rum? And I thought long and hard about it. And the answer that came back was treacle. Treacle, that iconic uh, British product that's in every kitchen um, that people bake with. Tate and Lyle number three treacle, to be exact. I said, we're going to make Jamaican rum, Jamaican style rum in the Cotswolds with Tate and Lyle number three treacle. So Cotswolds treacle rum was born and it is absolutely outstanding. And uh, I'm, I fell in love with it, but we just didn't have the wherewithal to 
to make more because our still the still that we were using was our first gin still, which which was too small. But now with the move to larger whiskey stills, we can use our existing whiskey stills to make uh, more treacle rum, uh, and um, I'm really excited about that. Well, I look forward to trying that at some point. Um, it's uh, a really inspiring story, and and you know the, the products are just um, you know really. Uh, fantastic i always uh, look forward to uh, the next one um so um dan it's a great pleasure uh, to talk to you good luck with the expansion plans and uh, well done on on everything you've achieved uh, already with the cotswolds distillery and above all thank you for talking to us on the drinking hour thanks so much david it's been a pleasure come see us i will the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Okay, just time for this week's batch of medal winners to look out for from the IWSC Hall of Fame 2021. And guess where we're starting? Yep, in Dan's honour, the Cotswolds Distillery. Hearts and Crafts Sautern Cask Single Malt Whiskey won a silver medal and 91 points in the 2021 awards. Uh, you heard Dan talking there about uh, how those uh, uh, cask influences impact uh, the whiskey. Uh, the judges described a delicate nose with cinnamon spice and buttered toast aromas, sweet palate with a medley of fruit, spun sugar and oat flavours. And uh, here's a double, another from the Cotswolds Distillery, uh, also in uh, his honour, a Cotswolds Distillery Sherry Cask Single Malt Whiskey, also a silver medal winner. Again, 91 points for this. Uh, the judges, uh, in this case, describing a lightly peppered nose with baked fruit, blood orange and honey aromas, warming and spicy palate with subtle porridge undertones and bright citrus flavours. Sounds delicious. Let's move to a wine next, a gold medal winner from Tuscany, Caponelle Chianti Classico Reserva 2016. Uh, this is Sangiovese, of course, the grape of Tuscany. Um, but the winery uh, started in 1974, was actually one of the first wineries uh, to blend Sangiovese uh, with Merlot. Uh, the judges, including me on this panel, I think, said... Uh, Italy being one of my specialisms. Uh, the open, refined nose shows tobacco, leather and black cherries. There's beautiful, soft, ripe, pure fruit on the palate, supported by excellent balancing freshness and really good length. A classic style, which is a delight to drink. And that's why it got a gold. Uh, next to France, uh, Noble Rive 2017 from Hertier Gambert, Cave de Tain. Uh, a blend of Marsan and Roussin, uh, those distinctive and delicious uh, Rhone uh, grapes. A silver medal winner with uh, 93 points in this case uh, from the Hermitage uh, Appellation in the uh, Northern Rhone. Uh, very synonymous, of course, with red wines. Uh, but in this case, uh, the judges describe sweet char flavour that overlays the exotic notes of pineapple and mango. Although youthful, the concentration is evident and the texture is almost chewy, making this wine fun yet tame at this stage. And finally, let's round off 
uh, with uh, a gold medal winning sweet wine. Uh, the perfect thing to round anything off, actually, uh, with a whopping 96 points. Uh, Inniskillen Niagara, uh, Cabernet Franc Ice Wine 2019. This is from the Niagara Peninsula on the east side of Canada. Grapes are left to freeze on the vine. That's what uh, Ice Vine is uh, all about. Uh, they do it in Germany yeah, too, in of Germany course. Too. And then it's crushed, producing a very sweet wine, uh, double the sweetness of Coca-Cola, apparently. Only 10 to 20% of the juice comes from each grape uh, harvested in temperatures of around minus seven degrees and to be uh, qualified for VQA status the grapes must freeze naturally although in some countries ice wine is made by freezing the grapes artificially called creo extraction but not here uh, the judges described a serious pronounced nose with strawberry cherry pastry and toffee notes lots of mouth-watering acidity keeps the luscious barley sugar cherry and plum fruits firmly in check a beautiful wine with excellent complexity and that's it for uh, another edition of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Uh, thank you very much to Dan Shaw at the Cotswolds Distillery. Uh, thank you to you for listening. Uh, you can follow us at uh, Food FM Radio on Twitter or Instagram. And I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. For now, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.